0: i'm steven metcalf and this is the slate culture gap fest normal people question mark edition it's wednesday may 13th 2020 On today's show, Normal People is the BBC Hulu adaptation of the Sally Rooney novel. It tells the story of a star-crossed, class-inflected love affair between two young aspiring creatives coming of age in contemporary Ireland. And then John Krasinski, he of the Quiet Place movies The Office and Jack Ryan, has created a quarantine talk show. From his home, it's called Some Good News, and you can find it on YouTube. And finally, Dana's turn has come around again. And how would you know that? The comfort movie pick this week features a murderous psychopath. <laughs> we d- <laughs> we discussed the Nicholas Ray noir classic in a lonely place, which I've wanted to see forever. Dana Stevens, thank you for uh, finally goading me into watching it. Uh, Dana is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hello. Please tell me that you're safe and sound in Brooklyn, New York.
1: I can't complain, or rather I can, but will not (laughs) on the air. Yeah,
0: I know, I know. Uh, And Julia Turner joins us from Los Angeles. She's the uh, deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And uh, I take it you're hanging in there, I hope.
2: As well as can be.
0: Okay. Marianne is a rich girl from an ice-cold, effed-up family. She's brilliant but troubled and socially ostracized at school to the point of being universally reviled. Connell is the school's beloved, if somewhat inscrutable, star, star athlete, star student. He's really kind of an impossible combination. He's popular, talented, unassuming. He's also the son of Marianne's family's housekeeper. The two begin a secret love affair, one that hopelessly confuses the pecking order of the school, where he's a demigod and she's the reviled scapegoat, up with the pecking order of the wider world, i.e. the social class structure of contemporary Ireland, by which her future is all but assured, and his, but for some very high test scores, would already be foreclosed. The novel was a rare thing indeed. It was a tragicomedy of manners that, along with her other novel, Conversations with Friends, made Sally Rooney an international literary darling. And dare I say it, kind of, voice of the millennial generation, possibly, the adaptation was substantially co-written by Rooney herself. It stars Daisy Edgar Jones as Marianne and Paul Mescal as Connell. Let's listen to a clip.
1: You were saying the other day that you
0: like me, but by the photocopier you said it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you mean like as a friend or what?
1: No. Not just as a friend.
0: Yeah, I I thought that might be implied. I just wasn't sure. See, I'm uh, just a little confused about what I feel. I think uh, it'd be awkward in school if something happened with us. No
1: one would
0: have to know. Dana, let me start with you. We talked about the book on the show. What'd you make of this adaptation?
1: I mean, I think that I would substantially say I have the same response as I do to the book, which maybe speaks to how faithful this adaptation actually is. Sally Rooney did write the first, I believe, the first half, the first six episodes of the show, and there's almost not a story beat from the novel that isn't in there. Uh, So if you like the extreme, it's been called kind of emotional pointillism of the novel, then you will like this adaptation, too. I think if you went into this adaptation without having read the novel, you might think, why am I spending six hours digging into every single detail of this interesting and at times touching but not incredibly unusual relationship between two ordinary people? But to me, that's that's sort of where the, the, the appeal comes from. Uh, if it weren't for the casting and the chemistry between the two leads, obviously a show that is all about, you know, love and sex and attraction and repulsion between two young people would, would only repel viewers and not attract them. And they found just two really great actors for these roles who, to me, really fulfilled how I pictured the characters in my mind from the book, with the exception, and I'm afraid you have to make this exception for almost every TV series and movie in history, is that the Marianne character is too good-looking. Daisy Edgar-Jones, who plays her, is an incredible, dazzling beauty. There's no one who would not think she's beautiful. And the first whole third or so of the the book and show revolve around the idea that she's this kind of homely outcast at the school. I mean, she is in part an outcast because she's arrogant and and a snob and considers herself better than everyone in this small Irish town, and that comes across in the adaptation. But there's also just this recurring thing about, oh, the ugly, flat-chested Marianne that we're all going to mock, and she's just as much of a knockout as all the other girls in the school. So if you can make allowances for that glitch, I think their relationship is super well-rendered. And this doesn't have the problem that so many of these long streaming series do of feeling padded to me, even though it is a 12-part adaptation of a book. And maybe that's because each segment is only half an hour, which for a drama is an unusual length and, and feels somehow right for this one. Because they're because of that pointillism, maybe, because there's just a very slight change in their relationship in, in every show.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Julia, what about you? How did this build upon or deepen or change your feelings about Rooney and what do you make of it as a TV watching experience?
2: I actually found it very different from the book as an experience, um, but smartly made and an interesting compliment to the book. I, I thought Willa Paskin made this point really smartly in her review, which is in the book, they have a lot of sex, but you're hearing about what they're thinking. And it's about kind of the complicated emotions around a sexual relationship and in the show you just watch them have a lot of sex like there's just a lot of sex and the sex isn't exploitative and it's you know kind of interestingly realistically rendered um but it's very serious sex like it's not i don't know funny or casual or it's very it's very solemn um in a way that is uh, you know, I just, a different way of experience these characters and their plot lines. I also think the way that, I mean, there is one major deviation in how the um, kind of plot points of the book are unfurled in the show, which is that Marianne's household is kind of icy and abusive. And that is rendered with a very soft touch. You get us, you get that it's kind of emotionally cold and distant in the world of the TV show, but um, you know, I'm five episodes in, and the the kind of sense of physical violence is um, only briefly mentioned and mentioned as part of Marion's history, not part of her present. And that becomes such an important part of her relationships as they unfold over time and her relationship with Connell that it seems odd to leave that out. and also makes her persona, in this small town where she's growing up, like kind of inexplicable. Like she doesn't seem, yeah, she's like arrogant and she puts people down and she's a little bit too lacerating with a burn, but she's gorgeous and her clothes are too nice. Like she's she's extremely fashionable in a way that rich girls are and can be, but in a way that is is not, like she's gawky and, doesn't shave her legs and has kind of got rougher edges in the book and she's such a like serene little ballerina in the show that that took some of the um, believability off of the ugly ducklingitude. But my favorite parts of the show, I mean the book we praised for kind of bringing structural class consciousness into and at odds with personal affiliation and, and kind of exploring what kind of relationship you can have in a world full of economic structures and tensions. And I really thought the show does a good job highlighting those in some of those ways. I mean, maybe that's the point of her rich girl clothes. And I really, really loved the scene where Connell, the episode where Connell first arrives at Trinity and is just so at sea and alienated in this world of kind of posh and polished students. So I I didn't dislike it. But I didn't like it as much as the book, and I think it's doing something interestingly different from the book, and the fact that Rooney's intelligence is animating it is, um, you know, makes it, I think, worth watching and worth pursuing, but I don't think it's nearly as good as the book. I will also say the music is dreadful. Like, the, yeah, did you not right find right.
0: the musical cues so too, distracting? Like Way too on the nose.
2: The sex music is very swoony, and then every episode closes with some kind of breathy singer-songwriter song that probably I would like on a Spotify playlist but like in which the main lyric that starts the, whatever clip they're using is like feeling she just had strum strum <laughs> I am describing it strum strum like Too it's on so
1: on literal same, yeah. Ugh, it's Irish really people having sex
2: uh, <laughs> 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 uh, Steve what do so you make
0: of it? I was I will admit to having watched all of it and been captivated and quite moved by it but with plenty of I wouldn't call them reservations, I loved it, but but a lot of thoughts. So I, you know, admire, really admire Sally Rooney, um, but not uncritically, and I thought normal people suffered from uh the um Connell character being slightly hard to believe. He's kind of the depresso lug dream jock equivalent of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. You know, there's you know, this impossible combination of him being uh you know a brilliant athlete completely not arrogant but also a brilliant student but not just you know i mean you know he's not just a a student you know he turns out to have remarkable you know literary sensitivities right i just don't i don't i wasn't sure that such a person really exists but the odd thing here is that that kind of flipped for me which is um I, thought this, I, I think they're both absolutely amazing. I think this is the launching of two stars. I think Paul Mescal is so wonderful as this guy. And all yeah. of a sudden, you see and feel the depth of his depression, shyness, and confusion, and how those th- three things really mix and create a kind of heaviness and reserve in him that's very human. And it explains a lot of the action of the drama, too. It's moments of working class humility where for example he just can't cough up a request to spend a month or two at her house over the summer you know because some summer job he had dried up and he can't make his rent you know that that sinks the whole relationship but that's that's like a it, in that performance you see that as an expression of work, of working class pride that's very believable and i think it hit me again watching this how much of the action of this is about Yes, whether he can transcend his social class roots. Uh, It's also about the brilliant insight that the pecking order of high school in a weird way, you are in this bubble that blissfully keeps the actual pecking order of the world at bay, i.e. social class. Um, But that also has its cruelties as well. And so, you know, as an adult, you have intelligently equivocal feelings about that. Um, And the fact that she's at the very, very bottom of that pecking order in high school, and you know in some sense that that's not lasting because she comes from this, this wealthy family. So his drama is a social class drama in some sense. Like, will he find you know, confidence in his own creative abilities as someone who comes from a world where that generally is not prized. And he's going to leave these mates behind, these people who've denigrated her in high school. But her drama is a very different one. The question attending her character is, can she overcome her association of abuse and cruelty and coldness from love in a way? I mean, she is damaged. That's what that's why the book kind of works, right? This person, you know, later on in the I don't want to give anything away for those who haven't read it or, you know, planning to see it haven't seen it yet, but it's, it's like she has a really fucked up attitude towards love and sex where she can't quite fully dissociate them from humiliation in a way. And what I think Rooney did so fucking brilliantly and it really comes out in the show is because of this weird accident of fate, whereby this utterly decent boy is the son of her mother's housekeeper. And he's sufficiently socially ashamed of the fact that he's sleeping with her. She can kind of have a denigrating relationship in its secrecy, but with an absolutely utterly decent human being. And so the question is, well, how's that going to play out? You know, I mean, that scene, Dana, I mean, I remember, it was was perhaps the scene I remembered most vividly from the book because... His mother, the housekeeper is so beautifully drawn as a character and it makes him believable as an utterly decent kid because he was raised by a single mother, single working class mother who is clearly like a fucking rock, right? Like the fucking paragon of decency and is drawn very believably as that. And there's a moment when she realizes her son is fucking this girl in secret. And she knows who this girl is at the school and why her son is doing this. And she pulls the car over and she fucking lights into... She just says, I'm... Like, she basically says, I'm ashamed of you in this moment, right? And what you're watching is the making of a a decent human being, right? A decent man, in some sense. It's like, you've really disappointed me by doing this. And she gets out of the car. And um, it seems to me that's where the stakes of this... Became, you know, become quite powerful,
1: and that is a great scene in the in the show as well. You we should mention Sarah Green, who plays the the mother Lorraine, is is a great character. Really, I think in the book too, the mother is the only fully drawn character that isn't one of the two leads. And, uh, and she's fantastic in it. There's a, there's a great line at one point where she's writing him years later still about this, you know, the fact that he blew off Marianne in high school. And he says, why are you still bothering me about this stupid teenage mistake? And she says, you are my stupid teenage mistake. And you understand why, you know, she's a single mother and, and so young, you know, that she clearly had him when she was not much older than when her teenage son started all this nonsense.
0: All right. Well, it's, uh, it's the, the show's normal people. It's about 12 episodes of varying lengths on, can be found on Hulu. BBC was behind it. Based on the Sally Rooney novel, check it out. Talk to us about it. Let's, let's move on.
1: Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
0: All right, before we go any further, let's talk business. Dana, what do you have?
1: Well, we have a few things in business today. For one thing in Slate Plus, we are going to be talking to dear friend of the podcast and former Slate music critic Jody Rosen, now from the New York Times Magazine, about Little Richard. This was actually, I think, Jody's idea. He wanted to dive bomb and have a segment about Little Richard, who passed away last week, and just talk a bit about what a huge influence, and in too many ways, an under-acknowledged and forgotten influence Little Richard is on the history of rock and roll and of American music. So that will be our Slate Plus segment. And as always, of course, if you want to hear those extra segments and to get our podcast ad free, as well as all the other Slate podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program. As we've been talking about for the last couple of episodes, the current pandemic situation has really caused a financial crunch in publishing in general and certainly at Slate. And that's why, sadly, we have to come to you now every two weeks for a while. But if you want to help turn that around, it is in your power. You can sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash culture plus again that's slate.com slash culture plus plus. and for those of you who do subscribe thank you we love you and the only other piece of business steve is that i believe you have your comfort movie picked out for two weeks from now we've been announcing these in advance so listeners have a chance to watch them as homework if they want to what are you going to watch
0: i think this week i'm going to go with a movie i don't know that i've seen it since either it came out or you know in the two years uh, period after it came out in the video window, release window, but uh, the Soderbergh movie, Out of Sight, big kind of comeback picture for him. It's the one that set him up, I think, to have this kind of glorious second part of his career that he has had. Stars uh, George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, and it's just saucy, sexy, fun, based on Elmore Leonard. Uh, Terrific picture, uh, as I recall, and I'd love to rewatch it with you guys.
1: Oh, yay. Maybe maybe my very favorite, Soderbergh. I'm so excited to rewatch that with you. That sounds like a blast. All right. Out of Sight, 1998, Steven Soderbergh. I'm sure it is available on practically every streaming platform because it's a beloved classic. And we will be talking about it in two weeks. Oh, wait, before we close down the business, there is one more piece of homework that we have to assign if people are interested. We thought that as a way to take advantage of this new biweekly format, we would start to try to do some bigger things. Um, for example, I read all of In a Lonely Place, Steve, because of you, uh, just to sort of have some background for the movie and, and how different the book and the movie are for this week. And what we would now like to do is read a big, long book together about the 1918 flu pandemic. This is supposedly one of the best histories of that pandemic, which for obvious reasons, is fascinating to learn about now, but would be in any historical time. It's called The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History. It's by John M. Barry. And, warning, it is 555 pages long. And for that reason, we're not exactly sure when we're going to do it on the show, but I wanted to throw it out there now as an assignment. If people want to get that book, it's on Kindle. It's in audiobook form. You can get it from your local bookseller, hard hardback, paperback, et cetera. It's been out for a few years now. And as soon as we can all manage to cram that book into our eyeballs, we want to talk about it and have a big segment on the um, the influenza pandemic of 1918 and what that makes us think about our own time. So again, John and Barry's The Great Influenza is going to be our book club pick. And I would say probably sometime in the next few weeks, depending on our reading capacity, we'll be discussing it on the show.
0: John Krasinski is the supremely likable Guy Guy actor who first broke onto stardom with the sitcom The Office. He's since vaulted onto superstardom with Jack Ryan and his writing and helming of the Quiet Place franchise. Uh, like the rest of us, he's trapped indoors. So he started Some Good News, a nice guy twist on the Weekend Update format. It's a dad jokey and earnest faux news show. It's comprised of Zoom cameos mixing ordinary folks like you and me with celebrities like Martha Stewart and David Chang and... Lin-Manuel Miranda and fill in the blank, Steven Spielberg, I think is in there. It's filled with tear-jerking good news items from around the world, which is coping with COVID quarantine. Let's listen to a clip. From Washington, DC, all the way to Spain, Chef Jose Andres hasn't decided to do something. He's decided to do the thing. Setting up kitchens anywhere from inside churches to inside national stadium. His goal is a simple one. Feed as many people as possible. From frontline workers to the elderly, from the homeless to his fellow furloughed service workers, just this week, Jose and his team have served over 3 million meals. Julia, let me start with you. What uh, what do you make of Mr. Krasinski and his uh, YouTube show?
2: Well, I had heard about this phenomenon but had not been watching it along the way. And I did something that is probably not advisable, which is watch like seven of these in a row at once in one go. And the thing I found most remarkable about them to start with is just how abruptly our reality has changed. This may sound obvious, but the difference in tone and what seemed reasonable to say in week one from what seems reasonable to say in week three or five or seven is really striking. And I found myself considering these texts as like primary source historical documents of a very weird moment in history rather than seeing them as entertainment like they felt instantaneously like little bits of history in the first week he's you know highlighting some of the things that have now come become familiar people cheering for healthcare workers in the evenings and um virtual birthday parties through cars and and people trying to express love and, and solidarity to each other from behind glass partitions and, you know, all, all of the kind of flotsam of little springs of hope that have uh, popped up in response to this very unusual circumstance. And so watching it all at once rather than being comforting was actually sort of misery inducing because, you know, if you're just kind of half listening to old episodes of The Good Wife say, hypothetically, or even transfixedly watching, you know, Irish Sex Pots Have Sex or uh, Humphrey Bogart Glower, you can be transported away. <laughs> but but this is this is the the kind of entertainment where you're like, We are in a pandemic and things are weird, but maybe sometimes people are nice also. Um, which is good to remember and he does a good job making you remember it. Um but I can't say I found it, like, very reassuring. Um, the other thing I'm curious about is sort of what is – what? why is this what Krasinski is doing? Like, he's essentially making an evening show or a late-night show that's based on an evening news show and aping the rhythms of everything from The Daily Show to Colbert to Weekend Update, you know, to sort of Fallon or, uh, or Kimmel kind of doing stunts and sketches with celebrities. Um, and the ambition level gets – Kind of astronomically bigger week by week. Like, you know, in week one, he's like, "Let me call up Steve Carell and reminisce about The Office." And then in week two, he's like, "Let me get some nurses from Boston and put them in a duck boat and take them to Fenway and introduce them to David Ortiz and have them run the bases." And you know, it, you know, it, it it he levels up aggressively, <laughs> and it's entertaining to watch. But why isn't he just like making sourdough like the rest of us? Like, I the the fundamental mystery of this being his ambition. Um, is what is most fascinating to me about the show.
1: Right, and that, and yet, that ambition is combined with this aggressively homemade aesthetic that the show has. Right, like the logo is a apparent crayon drawing by his two daughters saying "SGN, some good news." He makes it very clear that he's, you know, sitting at a desk in broad daylight, even though he's kind of aping an evening show host. And he's he's sweet enough and charming enough, and you want things to go well for him and Emily Blunt in their lives. That this show is agreeable to watch, but to me, it's missing the element that would make him into, you know, a John Stewart or a, a Johnny Carson or someone who you're sort of comforted by the return to their their desk and their world and the things that they tell you to look at. And I mean, I guess that would just be a little bit of spice to go with the sugar. Obviously, a show called Some Good News is not going to be ranting and raving about how awful and, and really, at times, hopeless feeling the situation that we're in is. But as he's contacting these essential workers and thanking them i mean there needs to be i think some sense of how deep and how dark the stakes are of the things that they're helping with and that seems to be something that shows is walling out in part maybe to be family friendly you know in part to to keep this this world of some good news all good but he has for example john stewart as a as a guest on one episode i think it was the second to last episode that stewart comes on and I just really got a sense of, for me, the actual comfort that John Stewart extended to me during the Bush administration, the reason that I did look forward to seeing his show at night, um, you know, obviously was not because it, it contained good news. It was because there was someone who was telling the truth about how messed up everything was.
0: Right. You know, obviously, John Krasinski is a brilliant human being. He is trying to do something in good faith that I admire. But as lovely as he is and as sweet as the intent behind this show is, it can't shut out, in my mind, the the really tragic aspect of this, which is that this thing coincided with the presidency of Donald Trump, i.e. the least competent, least compassionate human being who's ever held the office happened to have it at just the moment we got our once-in-a-hundred-year uh, pandemic. And the effects of this disease are going to be grotesquely maldestructed distributed among the haves and the have-nots of american society so it also comes at the end of a 30-year period of massively maldistributing life opportunity it's like i can't i can't turn that off and just watch feel good stories for 20 minutes midwife though they may be by the most pleasant man in show business um, he is really likable i say that without an ounce of of you know uh, shit-eating irony at all but it just doesn't you know i would say Julia, for me, this pandemic has been an excuse to completely shut out celebrity culture and completely shut out the sort of cyborg hybrid existence that we live vis-a-vis social media and to do one of two things, to really concentrate solely on the nuclear unit uh, and have my reality at last be face-to-face fully. In a way that I think a part of me dreams it it ought to be and you know should be, and to try to reckon with the you know really awful moral implications of how a disease hits a human society, but nowhere in that does there fall a desire to have Martha Stewart beam into a Zoom chat in order to make me feel as though I'm kind of part of her universe when everything in my experience indicates to me that I'm not.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually kind of extraordinary how well the celebrity cameos are pulled off in this. Like, everybody's game, and he's definitely coming up with better things for them to do, you know, than sing to us.
1: You know what I think might save this show? If I could give notes to John Krasinski, because I do admire the effort, and it's just, it's, I mean, part of my answer to your question, Julia, why why is he doing this now as opposed to just sourdough, is like, it's something to do. You know, it feels to me like he's... It's a creative endeavor that means something to him. And so even if it's not something I'll continue watching, I respect that. But I think it should be shorter. I think it should be one good thing. It should be like a 10 to 15 minute show that just covers one person in a little bit more depth and doesn't try quite so hard to have all the trappings of a regular talk show. I think I would be more likely to return to it that way without, And I wouldn't be asking it to betray its essence and become darker than he wants it to be.
0: So Julia, we didn't just randomly decide to talk about this. I mean, this thing got pretty big pretty quick, right? It's it's popular, it's out there, it's getting yeah, talked about. Yeah, I mean,
2: its first episode had 17 million views and so it kind of was this instant sensation and then subsequent episode had 12 and then since then they've been hovering a couple of them have hit around 6 million, some of them are around 3 million. You know, so it's sort of like the general attention economy. I mean, I think if you probably look at the traffic of Slate or the LA Times or anything making stuff like the kind of intense, I can't possibly think about anything except for the fact that this is what life is now of the first few weeks abates into a kind of more generalized interest in the situation. So it's a big hit that remains a big hit, but its audience pattern seems to be following the general audience pattern of the moment rather than kind of constantly accelerating, even as I think he's really raising the stakes in terms of what the big stunt is in each episode.
0: All righty. Well, it's called Some Good News. It's on YouTube. Check it out. Let us know what you thought of it. All right, moving on.
2: This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer.
0: As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Make the cloud work for you with
2: Cloud
1: Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com.
0: In a Lonely Place is the 1950 noir classic from director Nicholas Ray. I think he's best known for Rebel Without a Cause. This one stars Humphrey Bogart as Dixon Steele a brilliant if temperamental screenwriter on a losing streak. He's been asked to adapt a novel he feels nothing but scorn for, so much so he hasn't even bothered to read it. So in a fit of lazy inspiration, he asks a hat check girl who has read it to come over to his house, his apartment with him, and explain the book to him. It's late at night. His motives are, to say the least, pretty mixed. And her performance only fills him with more contempt, more self-loathing, and more writer's block. Later that night, after she's left his apartment, the girl is found dead, tossed out of a moving car, like, as the screenplay says, like a cigarette butt. Dixon's only alibi is his beautiful new neighbor, Laurel Gray, played by Gloria Graham. His only alibi is her, because she has caught him staring up at her across the courtyard of their mission-style apartment building right around the time of the murder. The two of them do hook up, but it's under the hovering gaze of the cops and under the suspicion that Dixon may be the remorseless psychopath that they claim he is, i.e. the murderer. Let's listen to a clip.
2: You know, you're out of your mind. How could anybody like a face like this? Look at it. I said I liked it. I didn't say I wanted to kiss it.
0: No,
1: you're
2: a quitter get out before you get hurt type. Is that bad? Well, I suppose you save yourself a lot of trouble that way.
1: I do. I think twice before I get into something.
2: (laughs) You're getting into something right now.
1: No, I'm not. I've only thought about
2: it once. You a fast thinker? Not right now. I didn't get much sleep last night. A neighbor kept me awake. Well, go ahead and get some sleep and we'll have dinner together tonight. We'll have dinner tonight, but not together.
0: Dana, I am very eager to talk about this uh, movie with you. But first, I, I have to ask, what is it about you that you confuse being comforted with being morally nauseated?
1: <laughs> I didn't realize the through line between my two comfort picks so far, The Talented Mr. Ripley and this, until you pointed it out. I promise for my next comfort pick, and I love lots of movies like this, I will pick something with absolutely no conflict whatsoever. <laughs> It's just about lying on soft cushions and eating bonbons. But could either of you resist this movie? I mean, what the comfort in this movie to me comes from just the utter gem-like perfection of its of its craft. I've seen it so many times now, and every single time I can't remember which scene succeeds which in the way that happens when you're truly entranced by a story, right? I can't predict any of the story beats. I'm Completely sh- shocked and surprised by the ending, and which is not just the ending, but you know, as you say, the suspense throughout the entire story as to whether or not Bogart is the murderer uh, and the love story. I mean, it's just well, we'll, we'll, we'll get into a little bit what a, a, a twisted love story it is and how hard it is to root for this couple. But at the same time, don't you root for them? I, how can you not love Laurel Gray and Dixon Steele together? They're one of the great film noir Hollywood couples. Mm. I mean. And...
2: Because he's an abusive weirdo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but don't you think? I mean, it's odd that we're talking about this in the same week as as normal people, right? Which is about this relationship that has, uh, at least on one side, a kind of masochistic strain. I mean, I think that this movie, in a way that probably Nicholas Ray could not even have been aware of at the time, is also a movie about what it was to be a woman, in particular, a sort of Hollywood, not quite a star, right? She's an aspiring star, Gloria Graham's character, Um, but to be this, this object of female beauty in this very dangerous and sordid, really corrupt Hollywood environment. And Gloria Graham was married to Nicholas Ray, and they actually split up during or right before the shooting of this film. So it was a very tempestuous set. She was forced by the producer to sign a contract, a clause in her contract that essentially said, while I'm on set, Nicholas Ray can... Tell me to do anything he wants. And if you read the language and how incredibly controlling it is, it really starts to border on being abusive and frightening in the way that the Bogart character is, is sketched to be.
2: Didn't they later break up because she was found in bed with his 13 year old son as well?
1: <laughs> oh, she really mean, did her homework. Like he, does, he,
2: he doesn't seem like the only person who's maybe crossing some lines. Uh, oh, oh plan. no, no.
1: I mean, both of them, both Nicholas Ray and Gloria Graham were, were such messed up individuals, and he married four times. But yes, she did, in fact, go to bed with his son, who was only 13 at the time. That happened two years after this movie came out, though. So they separated during this movie and divorced definitively when that happened. And she later married that teenager when he was a bit older, and they stayed married for four or five years. So yeah, there's there's crazy, crazy backstory to to the lives of both Nicholas Ray and Gloria Graham.
0: Holy moly! I did not know that uh, know that story. So I just a couple quick things, but before Julia, we, we bump it back to you. Is that uh, I didn't realize until I was browsing some internet materials that this movie is part of a trio of great acidic Hollywood satires that came out the same year. So there's In a Lonely Place, which was a bit of a bomb when it came out, uh, especially next to Sunset Boulevard and All About Eve. So really, three of the great movies about the movie making colony and about what's twisted about it came out within a period of months of one another. Just incredible! Uh, I love this movie. It's it's you know if you're a Bogart fan as I am a Nicholas Ray fan, it's just too delicious. I'm a fan of the book and what there is something so meta and I believe totally self conscious and precise. Uh, going on here, which is that all the entire action of the movie proceeds from the fact that he is supposed to be doing something that he's not doing. He is supposed to be adapting a book into a screenplay. This is a movie that is adapted from a book. And um, the question is asked explicitly in the course of the movie of the Bogart character, is he going to stick to the book? They've given him this schlock book. He doesn't want to do it. He understands before he's even cracked the book that it's a piece of crap. Middlebrow dreck. He's too much of a snob to do it. Bogart himself was a huge snob, uh, an Andover boy who hated the fact that he'd become an actor. He brought all of his ambivalence and spite to the role of this guy. And as a viewer, you're asking: Are they gonna? Is a Hollywood movie gonna stick close to the Dorothy Hughes book? What are they gonna do in this adaptation? They change quite a bit, but are they gonna stick to its essential moral? queasiness i mean it's kind of ghastliness the book is really ghastly it is among the darker books i've ever read but julia without giving anything away for anyone who knows the book the suspense and the meta aspect of this film are bound up completely in one another because you're i mean essentially you're asking the question that the heroine is asking which is am i going to end up with a psychopath
2: right one thing that's interesting about the movie is that it reads to me, I mean, yes, it's ostensibly about Hollywood and there's great Hollywood types in it. But to me, it seems much less interested in Hollywood and its mechanisms than Sunset Boulevard or all about Eve or about performance and fame and acting. It's It seems really just much more about mysterious violence simmering within men. And it's set, you know, post-war and it struck me as being kind of about that am i universalizing it too much like obviously no, no, no. the the idea is that dix is like a crazy is just like he's a weirdo he's not wired right you know there's a sense that he's an outlier um and that he's not reacclimating to society in the way that you know his his war buddy the cop has with his his charming wife and their charming seaside cottage but It really feels to me like it's much more about that. Like we sent, you know, every, all the men went away for five years to be killers and now they're just back at home.
1: Yeah, the right. movie's explicit about mm-hmm. that. It's subtle, but it's explicit. There's a moment that I think it's the agent character says he hasn't written anything decent since before the war, and it's 1950, assuming that the movie is set at the time it was made. So you know, there's been this five-year period that this traumatized veteran has been simmering away, failing as a as a screenwriter, and so that so all of that is in there.
2: I mean, the movie has it both ways because it's not it's. Even though it suggested he was a successful screen screenwriter before the war, it's never suggested that he was like a amiable peacenik before he went away and then he came back. And the movie's stronger for that, for suggesting that the kind of roiling violence within him is, is core to his being and not just a pure sudden trauma visited upon him by service. But still, I just couldn't couldn't help thinking of all of that. I mean, but despite my earlier comment about him being a violent weirdo, of course, this is incredibly compelling. their Their love interlude before she begins to fear him is incredibly, <laughs> wonderfully went, rendered. And I can completely understand why this is one of your all-time faves, but uh, I'd love to hear more from you, Dana, about what particularly you love about it and and how it earned its place in your all-time pantheon.
1: I mean, I think a huge part of it I can't really get into without spoiling a lot of stuff. And like I say, not just the ending, but, you know, some of the, the twists along the way is just that, you know, strip aside all of the, the noir trappings and, you know, the fantastic music by George Antheil, who was this kind of avant-garde and classical composer who just writes these beautiful love themes. If you strip away everything, the the craft of it, it, it comes down to this love story between two people who absolutely cannot make it work and absolutely want to, and and should be able to. You know, there's this sense almost that, that meeting Laurel Gray, the neighbor who gives him an alibi to get out of this murder is his, is is what Dick sees as his shot at at salvation at becoming maybe a good person and not the twisted and lonely and withdrawn person that we meet him as at the beginning of the film and she believes in that myth too and i feel like anybody who's ever had a relationship where they were trying to save someone whether that person was a you know a violent character or not but a a, a relationship where you think our love will somehow save us and redeem us cannot watch this movie without being heartbroken because you want that so much for the both of them. The chemistry between them is incredible. The humor between them is great. I mean, it's just so economically rendered. You absolutely believe in them and root for them and don't want him to be the killer. And then what you learn about, you know, about both of them over the course of the movie just just absolutely breaks your heart. I mean, I feel like I'm just saying the same thing over and over. You just ha- you have to see it. In order to to get what i'm talking about but i feel like there aren't that many romances particularly of this time that give the woman as much agency is sort of the wrong word because she's kind of a masochist but as much um you know psychological attention as laurel gray's character gets in this and there are very few romances from this time that don't either end with a sort of happy domestic ending of you know we're going to move in together and make babies or an ending where you know one of the two lovers turns out to be unworthy and and therefore rejected by the other and by the audience and I feel like this movie walks that line yeah. so so delicately at the end.
0: Yeah, I think Dana, that is really the key—the ending, which I don't want to give anything away—is really. I mean, it's as close to a full-on tragic ending as a in the in the really original sense of that term as I can remember. A, Hollywood movie from that era, um, offering up the audience. Though I, you know, I, one thing I just want to point to one more time is, you know, I, Bogart had such a tortured relationship to his craft and to his celebrity. He was a really interesting, literate, intelligent, and and legitimately tormented human being who thought he had let himself down by becoming an actor, and that's what made him a great one. All of that. Spite, internalized spite uh, and ambivalence rises to the surface in his best performances. And the writer Louise Brooks, I think, really captured it and said this was the best one. And I just want to read what she wrote. She said, before inertia set in, Bogart played one fascinatingly complex character, craftily directed by Nicholas Ray. In a film whose title perfectly defined Humphrey's own isolation among people, in a lonely place gave him a role that he could play with complexity because the character's pride in his art, his selfishness, his drunkenness, his lack of energy stabbed with lightning strokes of violence were shared equally by the real Bogart. And I, I he's just, he's magnificent. They're both magnificent in the movie, absolutely. But of his movies, arguably, I think this is his best performance. It's, um, it's really weird and upsetting because he he's frightening in the movie. He's legitimately frightening and he's he, he's frightening for what he does. He's frightening for what you suspect he may have done, even if he's innocent uh, of this murder. he's he's intolerable but very magnetic. and that just draw your eye draws your eyes to the screen and pulls you along the plot as a suspense plot.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you read that Louise Brooks quote. If anybody wants to track down where it came from. It's in this great essay called Humphrey and Bogie that that Louise Brooks wrote that's collected in in her her book Lulu in Hollywood. And I mean, as wonderful as she was as a silent actress, Louise Brooks is just as good as a writer about Hollywood and uh, I really recommend that book Lulu in Hollywood that 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 quote comes from. I had brought something in to read too, which is something that Nick Ray said uh, when giving a film class many years later um, in which he mentions Bogart's performance and what was so special about it in this movie. How connected it was in a way to his own psychology and his, his own character character. It's him talking to an acting student who describes a moment in which he got scared in a scene, essentially because he sort of lost emotional control. And Nick Ray says, What happened to you was a beautiful example of the involuntary performance, although a performance can never be completely involuntary because there's always at least the willingness to appear. After an involuntary performance, the actor is kind of stunned and bewildered. He doesn't know what happened to him. He is in shock at having caught sight of his own evasions, tricks, and cliches. Or at sensing something of his own vast and untapped resources, or of being forced to answer the question of why he became an actor at all. And then the interview asks, "Can you can you give some examples from your films?" And he mentions a few different things, including *Salminio* and *Rebel Without a Cause*. But then he says, "The scene at Romanoff's bar and in, in a lonely place, which you'll remember, is that that late scene where you know Bogart is completely losing control." And and the scene of of Gloria and Bogie in the kitchen, he says, which is that wonderful scene often included in anthologies of noir films of, of the grapefruit when he comes to her apartment and, and fixes her a grapefruit as she's just waking up. And there's a reason, I think, that that Bogart character taps so deeply into the real Humphrey Bogart, which is that... He and Nicholas Ray made this film together with Bogart's production company, so they sort of went outside the studio system, created this small production company they had already made one film together in it called Knock on any door a couple of years earlier and you know decided to return to this small independent production company to work together. In fact, that's why Lauren Bacall is not in the movie. That was who, who Bogart wanted, his own wife, to play the Laurel Gray character. But her studio was unwilling to to loan her out to this independent company, so they found Gloria Graham. And I cannot imagine anyone being better than her in the role.
2: She's incredible, and it would not be a Dana and Julia talk about film segment if I didn't very briefly note that I would like to own every single thing she wears in the (laughs) entire movie i have like never except for maybe um i i also felt this way about the clothes that emma thompson wore in late night that mindy kaling comedy last year but i have like never seen a more covetable wardrobe uh than gloria graham's in this so
1: yeah and the wardrobe communicates her character so perfectly just what she wears when she first walks into the The police detective's office into something about the casual casual almost androgynous way that she's dressed you just know that she's she's independent that she's solitary that she's the right woman for for dicks it's just all clear in what she wears and the way she walks
0: absolutely all right superb well the movie is in a lonely place starring humphrey bogart gloria graham it's directed by nicholas ray you gotta check it out you gotta i mean this is such one more thing i will say dane i think You'll agree with me. This is a classic of the example of a weird Freudian Hollywood oddball from the Golden Age that didn't do a lot of business when it first came out. But the but the young Frenchies at Caille de Cinema, Godard and Truffaut among them, worshipped Nicholas Ray, worshipped this movie and put it really seriously back on the map as the Bogart. Classic. It is such that movie of 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 the. It was too weird for America. It was too weird for 1950, but in the 1960s, you know, nouvelle vague critics who were reinventing cinema, you know, championed it to great effect. It is is it is almost the perfect example of that movie.
1: Yeah, I would agree. If you want to understand the Cahiers crowd and what it was about low budget film noir that they seized onto and and found sort of the highest expression of the cinéma américain you got
0: to watch In a Lonely Place. Yeah, you're here. All right, anyway, check it out. Let us know what you think of it.
1: I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FD journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find life and art from FD Weekend wherever you listen.
0: All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Nah. What do you have?
1: I think you guys know what I'm going to endorse because we talked about doing it as a segment this week and uh, and I think it would have been a good one. But at the very least, I hope that I can send people to it and that is the short film, very short, three and a half minute long film that Spike Lee made last week and released online, which I'm sort of amazed didn't go wildly viral because I really thought it was like the best, maybe the best film that Spike Lee has made yet in the 21st century. And maybe that's just because it hit me and you know hit the world at this very vulnerable moment. But it's just basically a music video. It's Frank Sinatra's version of New York, New York, you know, that iconic version that's played after every Yankees game, etc. Um, and Spike Lee just went around, he must have just gotten a car and a Super 8 camera and driven around New York and filmed all kinds of different, some famous landmarks, some just streets in the rain, empty places that we're used to seeing full... And over the course of this three and a half minute movie, I mean, I'm sure I'm going to get teary talking about this because I've watched it several times and cried every time. But over the course of this movie, he just very slowly reveals the crisis within the city. So at first you're seeing empty streets, but then you start to see why they're empty. You know, you see a sign on a, a locked park saying that it's, it's locked because of COVID-19. Um, you see the the USS Comfort, the ship, that, the hospital ship that's been parked in the harbor. Uh, You start to see essential workers, but it all unfolds in this in this very cinematic sort of spikely way. And there's a couple just thrilling transitions and dissolves in it that I won't reveal. You just have to see them for yourself. But it's such an example of, you know, necessity being the mother of invention. And this great filmmaker just having a, a shoestring idea that he had to execute essentially alone under a quarantine and deliver this kind of valentine to the city and by the end of this movie i was just completely in tears and i feel so grateful to him for making it so uh we'll put a link to that on the show page but you can also easily just google spike lee quarantine movie i'm sure it'll come right up
0: oh marvelous uh julia what do you have
2: I'm going to endorse an experience I had this past weekend, which was going to the Donut Hole in La Puente, California, which is a classic of California vernacular architecture. It is a drive-through donut shop in which you literally drive through a donut, like a donut-shaped tunnel with sort of a donut (laughs) on one end and a donut at the other. And as you go through on one side, they make the donuts, and you can see them pulling donuts from – you know, heaping oil and and put daubing frosting and sprinkles on them. And then on the other side they sell the donuts at two counters, one for drive through and one for walk up. And, you know, it's all it's still in operation. They're they're working with social distancing and everyone's wearing masks and gloves and, you know, it 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 was a adventure we took the kids on this weekend in an effort to make each weekend feel different in some way from the last. And the donuts were delicious and, and highly recommendable, particularly the apple fritter. But mostly it's just really fun to drive through a gigantic donut that says the donut <laughs> hole. And then the motto is, quote, it's the quality, which it is the quality, but really it's that you're driving through a giant donut. So I love the, 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 the motto on the donut hole.
1: They couldn't fit that on the awning. It's the fact you're driving through a giant donut. <laughs> I mean, That's they so could good. because the awning isn't an
2: awning; it's an enormous giant donut. <laughs> anyway, it's a, it was a classic experience, and it's one that I learned about from a piece that Carolina Miranda wrote for the LA Times this week about how drive-ins and drive-throughs, which are kind of classic uh, LA experiences of of an era of unquestioned sprawl, and which had been coming in for criticism and regulation in the in the past few years, as um, people are beginning to look at the benefits of of density and the problem with designing everything for cars are suddenly super useful because it's a place where you can have a semi-normal experience in a way that is pandemically relatively low risk. So I recommend both The Donut Hole in La Puente and Carolina Miranda's piece, drive throughs and drive-ins were fading. Coronavirus made them a lifeline, which is accompanied by just gorgeous pictures of all of these different, wonderful drive through establishments in Southern California um, by our photographer, Jake Dennon. So we'll have links to both of those on the show page.
1: Well, every restaurant should be shaped like the food that you're going to eat there. It's just it's such a great LA thing to just walk into a hamburger or a donut. But if you think about it, only foods with holes in them are suited to be drive-throughs. We're pretty much limited to donuts and bagels.
0: <laughs> uh, all right. So our plus guest Jody Rosen sent me this link to a Nick Lowe doing what's so funny about peace, love and understanding from his house for Rolling Stone magazine, a series they're doing on YouTube you know, featuring rock stars, uh, recording a song from home. I, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, Nick Lowe has, you know, he of, uh, rock pile, a wonderful solo career, cruel to be kind, produced the early Elvis Costello records and wrote the song. What's so funny about peace, love and understanding that Elvis Costello made famous. Nick Lowe has just turned into the great English gentleman, comfortable in his own skin rocker of, um, Uh, British rock and roll. I mean, he's just, he's such an elder statesman. He's so soothing. He's, he's just, he's such a crap, wonderful craftsman. He's aged beautifully. And I found this song. I think it's part of that same, I think he does two or three songs. I'll try to find the link, but I discovered a song of his that I didn't know called I read a lot. Do you guys know that song? No, it is perfection. And it's just that effortless wit and concision um, and craft that Lowe brought to songwriting, but it's a late song of his. I mean, he wrote it, I think, within the last 10 years. Uh, it's late period Nick Lowe, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful melody over these jazzy chords. And just it is just such a wonderful song. And I think he does it as part of that at-home series, but if not, there are plenty, you know, uh clips of him doing it doing it live but anyway we'll link to it and then we had a listener write in um talking about andrew bird his love of andrew bird the songwriter musician and that segued into saying have you heard of madison cunningham a young woman who's you know kind of in the phoebe bridgers mold uh, obviously listened to a lot of johnny mitchell growing up uh and she's she's terrific she's incredibly talented has not broken very big yet but the song Dry As Sand would be a good one maybe to start with so Nicolo, I read a lot and uh, Dry As Sand by Madison Cunningham we'll link to both of them alright uh, thanks Dana thank you Steve and thanks Julia thanks guys You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. Please email us. We enjoy it a lot, especially under current conditions. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.